Chapter 8 of Recollections of Abraham Lincoln, 1847 to 1865, by Ward Hill Lamon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. Chapter 8 The Humorous Side of His Character. No one knew better than Mr. Lincoln that genuine humor is a plaster that heals many a wound and certainly no man ever had a larger stock of that healing balm or knew better how to use it his old friend i n arnold once remarked that lincoln's laugh had been his life-preserver wit with that illustrious man was a jewel whose mirth-moving flashes he could no more repress than the diamond can extinguish its own brilliancy in no sense was he vain of his superb ability as a wit and story-teller noah brooks says in an article written for harper's monthly three months after mr lincoln's death that the president once said that as near as he could reckon about one-sixth only of the stories credited to him were old acquaintances all the others were the productions of other and better story-tellers than himself i remember said he a good story when i hear it but i never invented anything original I am only a retail dealer. No man was readier than he to acknowledge the force of Shakespeare's famous lines. A jest's prosperity lies in the ear of him that hears it, never in the tongue of him that makes it. Mr. Lincoln's stories were generally told with a well-defined purpose, to cheer the drooping spirits of a friend, to lighten the weight of his own melancholy a pinch, as it were, of mental snuff, to clinch an argument, to expose a fallacy, or to disarm an antagonist, but most frequently he employed them simply as labor-saving contrivances. He believed, with the great Ulysses of old, that there is naught so tedious as a twice-told tale, and during my long and intimate acquaintance with Mr. Lincoln I seldom heard him relate a story the second time. The most trifling circumstances, or even a word, was enough to remind him of a story, the aptness of which no one could fail to see. He cared little about high-flown words, fine phrases, or merely ornamental diction, and yet, for one wholly without scholastic training, he was master of a style which was remarkable for purity, terseness, vigor, and force. As Antenor said of the Grecian king, he spoke no more than just the thing he thought, and that thought he clothed in the simplest garb, often sacrificing the elegant and poetic for the homely and prosaic in the structure of his sentences. In one of his messages to Congress Mr. Lincoln used the term sugar-coated. When the document was placed in the hands of the public printer, the Honorable John D. DeFries, that officer, was terribly shocked and offended. Mr. DeFries was an accomplished scholar, a man of fastidious taste, and a devoted friend of the President, with whom he was on terms of great intimacy. It would never do to leave the forbidden term in the message. It must be expunged. Otherwise it would forever remain a ruinous blot on the fair fame of the President. In great distress and mortification the good DeFries hurried away to the White House, where he told Mr. Lincoln plainly that sugar-coated was not in good taste you ought to remember mr president said he that a message to the congress of the united states 
is quite a different thing from a speech before a mass meeting in illinois that such messages become a part of the history of the country and should therefore be written with scrupulous care and propriety such an expression in a state paper is undignified and if i were you i would alter the structure of the whole sentence mr lincoln laughed and then said with a comical show of gravity john that term expresses precisely my idea and i am not going to change it sugar-coated must stand the time will never come in this country when the people will not understand exactly what sugar-coated means mr defreeze was obliged to yield and the message was printed without amendment one day at a critical stage of the war mr lincoln sat in his office in deep meditation being suddenly aroused he said to a gentleman whose presence he had not until that moment observed do you know that i think general blank blank is a philosopher he has proved himself a really great man he has grappled with and mastered that ancient and wise admonition know thyself he has formed an intimate acquaintance with himself knows as well for what he is fitted and unfitted as any man living without doubt he is a remarkable man this war has not produced another like him why is it mr president asked his friend that you are now so highly pleased with general blank blank has your mind not undergone a change because replied mr lincoln with a merry twinkle of the eye greatly to my relief and to the interests of the country he has resigned and now i hope some other dress parade commanders will study the good old admonition know thyself and follow his example on the third of february eighteen sixty five during the so-called peace conference at hampton roads between mr lincoln and mr seward on the one side and the messrs stevens campbell and hunter on the other mr hunter remarked that the recognition of the confederate government by president lincoln was indispensable as the first step towards peace and he made an ingenious argument in support of his proposition citing as a precedent for the guidance of constitutional rulers in dealing with insurgents the case of charles i and his rebel parliament this reference to king charles as a model for imitation by a president of the united states was a little unfortunate but mr lincoln was more amused than offended by it turning to mr hunter he said on the question of history i must refer you to mr seward who is posted in such matters i don't pretend to be but i have a tolerably distinct recollection in the case you refer to that charles lost his head and i have no head to spare mr hunter during the same conference in speaking of emancipation remarked that the slaves had always been accustomed to work on compulsion under an overseer and he apprehended they would if suddenly set free precipitate themselves and the whole social fabric of the south into irretrievable ruin in that case neither the whites nor the blacks would work they would all starve together to this mr lincoln replied mr hunter 
You ought to know a great deal more about this matter than I do, for you have always lived under the slave system. But the way you state the case reminds me of an Illinois farmer who was not over-fond of work, but was an adept in shirking. To this end he conceived a brilliant scheme of hog culture. Having a good farm, he bought a large herd of swine. He planted an immense field in potatoes, with the view of turning the whole herd into it late in the fall, supposing they would be able to provide for themselves during the winter. One day his scheme was discussed between himself and a neighbor, who asked him how the thing would work when the ground was frozen one or two feet deep. He had not thought of that contingency, and seemed perplexed over it. At length he answered, "'Well, it will be a leetle hard on their snouts, I reckon, but them shouts will have to root, hog or die.' "'And so,' concluded Mr. Lincoln, "'in the dire contingency you name, whites and black alike will have to look out for themselves.' and I have an abiding faith that they will go about it in a fashion that will undeceive you in a very agreeable way. During the same conference, in response to certain remarks by the Confederate commissioners requiring explicit contradiction, Mr. Lincoln animadverted with some severity upon the conduct of the rebel leaders, and closed with the statement that they had plainly forfeited all right to immunity from punishment for the highest crime known to the law. Being positive and unequivocal in stating his views concerning individual treason, his words seemed to fall upon the commissioners with ominous import. There was a pause, during which Mr. Hunter regarded the speaker with a steady, searching look. At length, carefully measuring his own words, Mr. Hunter said, "'Then, Mr. President, if we understand you correctly, you think that we of the Confederacy have committed treason, that we are traitors to your government, that we have forfeited our rights and our proper subjects for the hangman. Is not that about what your words imply? Yes, said Mr. Lincoln. You have stated the proposition better than I did. That is about the size of it. There was another pause, and a painful one, after which Mr. Hunter, with a pleasant smile, replied, well, Mr. Lincoln, we have about concluded that we shall not be hanged as long as you are president, if we behave ourselves. There is here as high a compliment as could have been paid to Mr. Lincoln, a trust in his magnanimity and goodness of heart. From the gentleness of his character, such were the sentiments he inspired even among his enemies, that he was incapable of inflicting pain punishment or injury if it could possibly be avoided that he was always resolutely merciful and forbearing on his return to washington after this conference mr lincoln recounted the pleasure he had had in meeting alexander h stevens who was an invalid all his life and in commenting upon his attenuated appearance as he looked after emerging from layers of overcoats and comforters mr lincoln said was there ever such a nubbin after so much shucking at one time when very lively scenes were being enacted in west virginia a union general allowed himself and his command to be drawn into a dangerous position 
from which it was feared he would be unable to extricate himself without the loss of his whole command. In speaking of this fiasco, Mr. Lincoln said, General blank blank reminds me of a man out west who was engaged in what they call heading a barrel. He worked diligently for a time driving down the hoops, but when the job seemed completed, the head would fall in and he would have to do the work all over again. Suddenly, after a deal of annoyance, a bright idea struck him. He put his boy, a chunk of a lad, into the barrel to hold up the head while he pounded down the hoops. This worked like a charm. The job was completed before he once thought about how he was to get the little fellow out again. Now, said Mr. Lincoln, that is a fair sample of the way some people do business. They can succeed better in getting themselves and others corked up than in getting uncorked. During the year 1861 it was difficult to preserve peace and good order in the city of Washington. Riots and disturbances were occurring daily, and some of them were of a serious and sometimes dangerous nature. The authorities were in constant apprehension, owing to the disloyal sentiment prevailing that a riot might occur of such magnitude as to endanger the safety of the capital, and this necessitated the utmost vigilance on their part to preserve order. On one occasion, when the fears of the loyal element of the city were excited to fever heat, a free fight near the old National Theater occurred about eleven o'clock one night. An officer, in passing the place, observed what was going on, and seeing the great number of persons engaged, he felt it to be his duty to command the peace. The imperative tone of his voice stopped the fighting for a moment, but the leader, a great bully, roughly pushed back the officer and told him to go away, or he would whip him. The officer again advanced and said, I arrest you, attempting to place his hand on the man's shoulder, when the bully struck a fearful blow at the officer's face. This was parried and instantly followed by a blow from the fist of the officer striking the fellow under the chin and knocking him senseless. Blood issued from his mouth, nose, and ears. It was believed that the man's neck was broken. A surgeon was called, who pronounced the case a critical one, and the wounded man was hurried away on a litter to the hospital. There the physician said there was concussion of the brain and that the man would die. All medical skill that the officer could procure was employed in the hope of saving the life of the man. His conscience smote him for having, as he believed, taken the life of a fellow creature, and he was inconsolable. Being on terms of intimacy with the President about two o'clock that night, the officer went to the White House, woke up Mr. Lincoln, and requested him to come into his office where he told him his story. Mr. Lincoln listened with great interest until the narrative was completed, and then asked a few questions, after which he remarked, I am sorry you had to kill the man, but these are times of war, and a great many men deserve killing. This one, according to your story, is one of them, so give yourself no uneasiness about the matter. I will stand by you. That is not why I came to you. I knew I did my duty, and had no fears of your disapproval of what I did," replied the officer, and then he added, "'Why I came to you was I felt great grief over the unfortunate affair, 
and wanted to talk to you about it. Mr. Lincoln then said with a smile, placing his hand on the officer's shoulder, You go home now and get some sleep, but let me give you this piece of advice. Hereafter, when you have occasion to strike a man, don't hit him with your fist. Strike him with a club, a crowbar, or with something that won't kill him. The officer then went home, but not to sleep. The occurrence had a great effect upon him and was a real source of discomfort to his mind during the fourteen months the unfortunate invalid lived, and it left a sincere regret impressed upon him ever after. But the conciliatory and kindly view prompted by Mr. Lincoln's tender heart and his fidelity to friendship on that occasion is to this day cherished in the officer's memory with a feeling of consecration. About the first time Mr. Lincoln contemplated leaving Washington, he was to attend some gathering of the people in Baltimore, Philadelphia, or New York. A committee waited upon him and urged his attendance on the occasion, saying that they were sure Mr. Garrett, the president of the only road then going east out of Washington, would take great pleasure in furnishing a special train of cars for him. Well, said the president, I have no doubt of that. I know Mr. Garrett well, and like him very much. But if I were to believe, which I don't, everything some people say of him about his secesh principles, he might say to you, as was said by the superintendent of a railroad to a son of one of my predecessors in the office, some two years after the death of President Harrison, the son of the incumbent of this office, contemplating an excursion for his father somewhere or other, went to order a special train of cars. At that time politics were very bitter between the Whigs and the Democrats, and the railroad superintendent happened to be an uncompromising Whig. The son made known his demand, which was bluntly refused by the railroad official, saying that his road was not running special trains for the accommodation of presidents just then. What, said the young man, did you not furnish a special train for the funeral of General Harrison? Yes, said the superintendent, very calmly, and if you will only bring your father here in that shape, you shall have the best train on the road. But gentlemen, continued Mr. Lincoln, I have no doubts of Mr. Garrett's loyalty for the government or his respect for me personally, and I will take pleasure in going. General James B. Fry, the provost marshal general during Mr. Lincoln's administration, was designated by the Secretary of War as a special escort to accompany Mr. Lincoln to the field of Gettysburg upon the occasion of the anniversary of that battle. The general, on arriving at the White House and finding the president late in his preparations for the trip, remarked to him that it was late, and there was little time to lose in getting to the train. Well, said Mr. Lincoln, I feel about that as the convict did in Illinois when he was going to the gallows. Passing along the road in custody of the sheriff and seeing the people who were eager for the execution crowding and jostling one another past him, he at last called out, Boys, you needn't be in such a hurry to get ahead, for there won't be any fun till I get there. General Fry also tells of a conversation between Mr. Lincoln and Mr. Stanton in relation to the selection of brigadier generals. 
Mr. Lincoln was heard to say, Well, Mr. Secretary, I concur in pretty much all you say. The only point I make is that there has got to be something done which will be unquestionably in the interest of the Dutch, and to that end I want Schimmelfinney appointed. The secretary replied, Mr. President, perhaps this Schimmel, what's his name, is not as highly recommended as some other German officer. No matter about that, said Mr. Lincoln, his name will make up for any difference there may be, and I'll take the risk of his coming out all right. Then with a laugh he repeated, dwelling upon each syllable of the name and accenting the last one, Schimmelfenig must be appointed. Mr. Wells, in speaking of the complication into which Spain attempted to draw the government of the United States in regard to reclaiming her possessions in San Domingo, says that the pressure was great on both sides, and the question a grave and delicate one as to what position we should take and what course pursue. On the one side Spain, whose favor we wish to conciliate, and on the other the appeal of the Negroes against Spanish oppression. Mr. Seward detailed the embarrassments attending the negotiations to Mr. Lincoln, whose countenance indicated that his mind was relieved before Mr. Seward had concluded. He remarked that the dilemma of the Secretary of State reminded him of an interview between two Negroes in Tennessee. One was a preacher, who, with the crude and strange notions of his ignorant race, was endeavoring to admonish and enlighten his brother African of the importance of religion and the danger of the future. "'There are,' said Josh, the preacher, two roads before you, Joe. Be careful which you only take. Narrow am the way that leads straight to destruction, but broad am the way that leads right to damnation.' Joe opened his eyes with affright, and under the inspired eloquence of the awful danger before him exclaimed josh take which road you please i shall go true to woods i am not willing said the president to assume any new troubles or responsibilities at this time and shall therefore avoid going to the one place with spain or with the negro to the other but shall take to the woods we will maintain an honest and strict neutrality when Attorney General Bates resigned late in 1864, after the resignation of Postmaster General Blair in that year, the cabinet was left without a Southern member. A few days before the meeting of the Supreme Court, which then met in December, Mr. Lincoln sent for Titian F. Coffey and said, My cabinet has shrunk up north, and I must find a Southern man. I suppose if the Twelve Apostles were to be chosen nowadays, the shrieks of loyalty would have to be heeded. Mr. Coffey acted as Attorney General during the time intervening between the resignation of Mr. Bates and the appointment of Mr. Speed. He tells about a delegation that called on Mr. Lincoln to ask the appointment of a gentleman as commissioner to the Sandwich Islands. They presented their case as earnestly as possible, and besides their candidate's fitness for the place, they urged that he was in bad health, and that a residence in that balmy climate would be of great benefit to him. The President closed the interview with this discouraging remark. Gentlemen, I am sorry to say that there are eight other applicants for that place, 
and they are all sicker than your man. In 1858 Mr. Lincoln was engaged at Bloomington in a case of very great importance. The attorney on the other side was a young lawyer of fine abilities, who has since become a judge. He was a sensible and sensitive young man, and the loss of a case always gave him great pain, to avoid which he invariably manifested an unusual zeal and made great preparation for the trial of his cases. This case of which I speak lasted till late at night, when it was submitted to the jury. In anticipation of a favorable verdict the young attorney spent a sleepless night in anxiety, and early next morning learned to his great chagrin that he had lost the case. Mr. Lincoln met him at the courthouse some time after the jury had come in, and asked him what had become of his case. With lugubrious countenance and in a melancholy tone the young man replied, "'It's gone to hell!' "'Oh, well,' said Mr. Lincoln, "'then you will see it again.' Mr. Lincoln had shown great wisdom in appreciating the importance of holding such Democrats as Mr. Douglas close to the administration on the issue of united country or a dissolution of the Union. He said, "'They are just where we Whigs were in 1848, about the Mexican War.' We had to take the Locofoco preamble when Taylor wanted help, or else vote against helping Taylor, and the Democrats must vote to hold the Union now, without bothering whether we or the Southern men got things where they are, and we must make it easy for them to do this, for we cannot live through the case without them. He further said, Some of our friends are opposed to an accommodation because the South began the trouble and is entirely responsible for the consequences, be they what they may. This reminds me of a story told out in Illinois where I lived. There was a vicious bull in a pasture, and a neighbor passing through the field. The animal took after him. The man ran to a tree, and got there in time to save himself. But being able to run round the tree faster than the bull, he managed to seize him by the tail. His bullship, seeing himself at a disadvantage, paused the earth and scattered gravel for a while, then broke into a full run, bellowing at every jump, while the man, holding on to the tail, asked the question, "'Darn you, who commenced this fuss?' "'Now our plain duty is to settle the fuss we have before us, without reference to who commenced it. Mr. Lincoln told another anecdote in connection with the probable adjustment of the difficulties. Said he, Once on a time a number of very pious gentlemen, all strict members of the church, were appointed to take in charge and superintend the erection of a bridge over a very dangerous and turbulent river. They found great difficulty in securing the services of an engineer competent for the work, Finally, Brother Jones said that Mr. Myers had built several bridges, and he had no doubt he could build this one. Mr. Myers was sent for. The committee asked, Can you build this bridge? Yes, was the answer. I can build a bridge to the infernal regions if necessary. The committee was shocked, and Brother Jones felt called upon to say something in defense of his friend, and commenced by saying, "'Gentlemen, I know my friend Myers so well, and he is so honest a man and 
so good an architect that if he states positively that he can build a bridge to hell why i believe he can do it but i feel bound to say that i have my doubts about the abutment on the infernal side so said mr lincoln when the politicians told me that the northern and southern wings of the democracy could be harmonized why i believed them of course but i had always my doubts about the abutment on the other side anthony j bleeker tells his experience in applying for a position under mr lincoln he was introduced by mr preston king and made his application verbally handing the president his vouchers the president requested him to read them which he commenced to do before mr bleeker had got half through with the documents the president cried out oh stop you are like a man who killed the dog not feeling particularly flattered by the comparison mr bleeker inquired in what respect mr lincoln replied he had a vicious animal which he determined to dispatch and accordingly knocked out his brains with a club he continued striking the dog until a friend stayed his hand exclaiming you needn't strike him any more the dog is dead you killed him at the first blow oh yes said he i know that but i believe in punishment after death so i see you do mr bleeker acknowledged that it was possible to do too much sometimes and he in turn told an anecdote of a good priest who converted an indian from heathenism to christianity the only difficulty he had with him was to get him to pray for his enemies the indian had been taught by his father to overcome and destroy them that said the priest may be the indian's creed but it is not the doctrine of christianity or the bible st paul distinctly says if thine enemy hunger feed him if he thirst give him drink the indian shook his head at this and seemed dejected but when the priest added for in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head the poor convert was overcome with emotion fell on his knees and with outstretched hands and uplifted eyes invoked all sorts of blessings on his adversary's head supplicating for pleasant hunting grounds a large supply of squaws lots of papooses and all other indian comforts till the good priest interrupted him as you did me exclaiming stop my son you have discharged your christian duty and have done more than enough oh no father says the indian let me pray i want to burn him down to the stump mr bleeker got the position mr lincoln wrote one who knew him very well was a good judge of men and quickly learned the peculiar traits of character in those he had to deal with he pointed out a marked trait in one of the northern governors who was earnest able and untiring in keeping up the war spirit of his state but was at times overbearing and exacting in his intercourse with the general government upon one occasion he complained and protested more bitterly than usual and warned those in authority that the execution of their orders in his state would be beset by difficulties and dangers the tone of his dispatches gave rise to an apprehension that he might not cooperate fully in the enterprise in hand the secretary of war therefore laid the dispatches before the president for advice or instructions 
they did not disturb mr lincoln in the least in fact they rather amused him after reading all the papers he said in a cheerful and reassuring tone never mind those dispatches don't mean anything just go right ahead the governor is like the boy i saw once at the launching of a ship when everything was ready they picked out a boy and sent him under the ship to knock away the trigger and let her go at the critical moment everything depended on the boy he had to do the job well by a direct vigorous blow and then lie flat and keep still while the ship slid over him the boy did everything right but he yelled as if he were being murdered from the time he got under the keel until he got out i thought the skin was all scraped off his back but he wasn't hurt at all the master of the yard told me that this boy was always chosen for that job that he did his work well that he never had been hurt but that he always squealed in that way that's just the way with governor blank blank make up your minds that he is not hurt and that he is doing his work right and pay no attention to his squealing he only wants to make you understand how hard his task is and that he is on hand performing it time proved that the president's estimation of the governor was correct upon another occasion a governor went to the office of the adjutant-general bristling with complaints the adjutant finding it impossible to satisfy his demands accompanied him to the secretary of war's office whence after a stormy interview with secretary stanton he went alone to see the president the adjutant-general expected important orders from the president or a summons to the white house for explanation after some hours the governor returned and said with a pleasant smile that he was going home by the next train and merely dropped in to say good-bye making no allusion to the business upon which he came nor his interview with the president as soon as the adjutant-general could see mr lincoln he told him he was very anxious to learn how he disposed of governor blank blank as he had started to see him in a towering rage and said he supposed it was necessary to make large concessions to him as he seemed after leaving the president to be entirely satisfied oh no replied mr lincoln i did not concede anything you know how that illinois farmer managed the big log that lay in the middle of his field to the inquiries of his neighbors one sunday he announced that he had got rid of the big log got rid of it said they how did you do it it was too big to haul out too knotty to split and too wet and soggy to burn what did you do well now boys replied the farmer if you won't divulge the secret i'll tell you how i got rid of it i plowed around it now said lincoln don't tell anybody but that is the way i got rid of governor blank blank i plowed around him but it took me three mortal hours to do it and i was afraid every minute he would see what i was at mr lincoln enjoyed telling of the youth who emigrated to the west and wrote back east to his father who was something of a politician dear dad blank i have settled at blank blank and like it first rate do come out here for almighty mean men get office here thurlow weed tells of breakfasting with lincoln and judge davis while in springfield in december prior to mr lincoln's first inauguration judge davis remarked mr weed's fondness for sausage and said 
you seem fond of our chicago sausages to which mr weed responded that he was and thought the article might be relied on where pork was cheaper than dogs that said mr lincoln reminds me of what occurred down in joliet where a popular grocer supplied all the villagers with sausages one saturday evening when his grocery was filled with customers for whom he and his boys were busily engaged in weighing sausages a neighbor with whom he had had a violent quarrel that day came into the grocery made his way up to the counter holding two enormous dead cats by the tail which he deliberately threw onto the counter saying this makes seven to-day i'll call round monday and get my money for them mr lincoln read men and women quickly and was so keen a judge of their peculiarities that none escaped his observation once a very attractive woman consumed a good deal of mr lincoln's time he finally dismissed her with a card directed to secretary stanton on which he had written this woman dear stanton is a little smarter than she looks to be end of chapter eight the humorous side of his character read by john greenman